this is the month that God begins to in some ways bless us, followed by the Feast of Dedication, which falls then on the 1st of January and goes through the 8th. So we can begin thinking about that and the dedication of the temple. Hopefully it will get built soon and we'll be able to fulfill the dedication of it in real instead of just in type and hope. I look forward to that time. Uh, Also, I thought I'd announce this uh, so that it goes out on the telephone line, not just here, but uh, Gloria over here and I are very happy to announce our engagement. Uh, We're looking at maybe the 12th of January and uh, looking forward to that. I received uh, an email uh, this morning from someone that I've known for many, many years. In fact, he's been out here to visit once, and I don't know the source of the article he wrote but it was, uh, that he sent, but it was from someone in the Church of God, or Churches of God, as he put it. Um, it still is just one church. It's just in little bitty pieces, <laughs> you know? And he says he's going to bring the seven trees together. So, uh, there is an end to this at some point. But the basis of it was that, uh, and some of this is Jewish information, that uh, from uh, 9-1-1 and 2001 uh, began a count of 35 years of the seven times punishment of Leviticus 26 and 28. So I thought I'd take a few minutes here at the beginning sermonette time or announcement time or whatever you used to call it, to comment a little bit on that before we get into the sermon. Uh, But certainly seven times punishments is mentioned there. Uh, But what they are saying there, if it began in 2001, that this nation would not be destroyed until possibly 2029 or 20 or up to 2036 or a period of time beginning in 2029 and sometime during that period of time of seven years it would go down and could be as late as 2036. So it was sent for me to look at and uh, I immediately began to see some problems with that and I, I would like to mention those. First of all, they're basing it on the Jubilee, which the Jews have different than what we believe we understand. See, the Jews never accepted Christ. So they would never accept Luke 4, which says that Christ was, I believe, announcing the Jubilee, the acceptable year of the Lord, there when he made that statement uh, in Luke 4. Putting that together, the Jubilee would have to be again about 2026, if you count the 50s from the time that he made that announcement. And uh, not 2036 or beyond. See, when the Jews count back to creation, they come up with the wrong date. If Christ was indeed announcing the Jubilee there when he made that statement in Luke 4, all you have to do is count back 50-year periods to find the creation. Uh, Not too hard to do, and the Jews don't have it right. But then, when have the Jews had anything right? They didn't have anything right in Christ's day. They still didn't have it right 
when Paul wrote Romans, uh, they didn't have it right ever. So why would we expect that they have anything right today? Well, they have their own agenda of things that they think need to be done, but none of them include Christ Himself, and He's the key to the whole thing and His relationship with the Father. But some immediate, some immediate problems I see is that that would put Christ's return off at least 20 years uh, from when we think that it could occur in 2026-27 range. Because if you wait till 2029 or 2036, and then you add on to that the building of Jerusalem, which has to occur for about a year and a half prior to the tribulation starting, because as soon as it's finished, it is desecrated and the tribulation starts. Then you got another three and a half years to wait until Christ returns, so that's five more right there on top of the 2036 or even 2029. So we're looking at at least 20 years beyond the date that the Jubilees might seem to indicate. What does that do? Well, it puts us beyond Nehemiah and Haggai's statements that there would be old men around who saw the first temple in its glory and who would see the second. So let's figure uh, it's another 20, 25 years. How many of you will be around then? <laughs> Al doesn't think he will be. I seriously doubt I would be. <laughs> Even some of you who are creeping past middle age might not be. So uh, there's a scriptural reference that shows that God is going to work with this generation, Christ said. The one who is here when the events that are starting to occur in Matthew 24 do. That that generation will not pass away until these things are done. And the generation he's called into the church in another 20, 25 years would essentially be gone, especially any who could see it. I mean, we've got kids now that are 35 years old who never heard of Herbert Armstrong. Half a lifetime's gone by. I mean, if it's been over 30 years since he died. 32, going on 33, I guess it is now. And then if they were two, three, four, five years old, when he died, they wouldn't remember him at all. So you could be pushing 40 and never have heard or seen what Worldwide Church of God did. So those of us who are still around uh, have got to live to see this thing through. So I find a real problem right there. And uh, not only that, you look at the way things are. And the writer of that article did say, I read the alternate news, and he says, I see things that indicate it could happen any minute, uh, but then he wants to put it off because of Jewish belief and when the Jubilees are. I don't think we have the luxury of doing that. I think the repentance needs to come quicker than that. And then I could add on top of that, I believe that the 430 years of Ezekiel did have to do with this nation, and God gave us back with pretty much liberty, that 430 years that were spent in slavery in Egypt, or Mitzrayim. And what did we do with that 430 years that God gave us out of slavery to manage our own affairs and have an opportunity 
to build a godly nation. We didn't get it done. And we are an ungodly nation today through and through. So we failed at the 4.30, and God says that soon after, it is near, it is here, it is coming, it is coming, that the destruction would come. And there's no other 430 that I can find or you can find that seems to equate to what Ezekiel did that has to do with the nations of Israel today, and especially Ephraim being the firstborn. I believe the 70 years are also gone, uh, beginning with the college in 1947. That was when Herbert Armstrong says we need to build houses. We're going to have a long time here. We need to build church houses. The ministers and everybody else need to build houses. We need to build whatever we can because we got a gospel to preach and there's going to be time to do it. And he had seen that without church houses or without local congregations, without ministers, they all fell apart and went away. So he says, we've got to do this. And that began officially in 1947 when he started the college to train people to do that. That ended in the fall of 2017, as did the 400 years, 430 years from Roanoke until July of 17. Then you add to that, not that it would happen immediately, but that it was the second year of Darius. Darius had caused Babylon to fall. And it was in his second year that they were allowed then to be released to go build the temple. And if you count the end of the 430 in the fall of 2017, the end of the 70 in the fall of 2017, uh, fall of 2018, finished the first year since that, and we're in the second year since both those events occurred. So the timing seems to be that this thing is indeed on the edge, and we may see some fireworks pretty quick. I read two or three articles recently that says that it isn't about to burst. The pen has been inserted and it has been pricked. The financial bubble is already, the air is starting to come out of it. Uh, quite a few things that I don't have time to go into here, but you watch that stuff too. And uh, we are right on the edge. So, uh, look at it. Habakkuk complained to God. He wanted things to speed up, wanted them done now, and kind of got in an attitude. And then he said, I guess I better shut up and go sit on my watch and wait for God to do this. So he did. And uh, I felt the same way. You know, Zephaniah, God says he's going to destroy all the idols in the land. Then he talks about a financial crash. Then he talks about people gathering themselves before the decree of destruction occurs. I had thought that maybe we were to gather before the financial crash, but I don't think that's the case. The financial crash is announced in Zephaniah 1, and 2, he says, gather yourselves before the decree of destruction. Well, the decree of destruction is right after that when the Assyrian comes into the land shortly thereafter. And if you put that in context with Jeremiah 50 and 51 and other scriptures, it shows that those who gather flee just ahead of the Assyrian army. So it may be that the bubble crashes, finances all come to pieces, that alerts people, then God does some signs and wonders and they come a-running. And... Uh, that young lady that I saw a dream of who had been stripped naked 
is when she came running. So when they're stripped naked financially might be what gets their attention, and now it's time to come, and God shows them then where to come. So if the financial crash is upon us, it won't be too long until we see a gathering, maybe after Passover, and then our destruction, if the 65 years did begin of Isaiah 7, did begin in 1954, then by 1st of June of 2019, this nation should be pretty well destroyed. So I don't know whether that timing is absolutely correct or not, but uh, I know one thing, there isn't very long to wait to find out. So it seems to fit. And I sure like it better than that article I read this morning that says I'm gonna, we're all gonna be dead before it happens. I don't, don't care for that much. And I don't think that the scriptures fit that at all. And I certainly don't believe anything the Jews tell me. Haven't for a long, long time. Alright, let's get into 1 Corinthians 2. I'll go back a few verses to summarize the end of chapter 1 where they had gotten puffed up, and they were allowing sin, they were allowing uh, all kinds of problems, and they were fighting among themselves, and trying to determine which minister to follow, and all that kind of stuff, and then he kind of leveled them all by saying, God doesn't call any, hardly any of the mighty and noble, but he calls those who don't amount to much, and we've known that for many, many years. Uh, Verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. In other words, we didn't call ourselves, we didn't teach ourselves the things we know. It came through someone else whom he had called, chosen, taught, and appointed to bring it to us. None of us would have found it on our own. So we need to recognize that God has appointed those that he would send to us. Verse 30, but of him are you in Christ Emmanuel, who of God is made to us, notice what he's given to us, the things we didn't have when we were called. Wisdom, we weren't the wise of the world, we weren't the mighty of the world, so he's given us wisdom, spiritual wisdom, to understand a lot of things. The things that I just went over, I may not be completely correct in down to the detail, but they're not far off if they are off at all. But where did that come from? This word, through the prophecies of the Old Testament. didn't come through the Jews, whom, God, whom Christ disfellowshipped in Matthew 23, but through the word of God. So there is where we get our wisdom, through his word and his spirit that helps us understand it. Wisdom and righteousness. Sanctification, or setting aside for a holy purpose, and redemption, redeemed from our sins, redeemed from the world, redeemed from Satan, and prepared for Christ. Those are some pretty important things there that he gave the weak and the base of the world, us. So we should be thanking him and giving him glory and honor for that which we do have, instead of complaining about that which we don't have, or about each other whom we find imperfect. That isn't our job. He'll go on to show who his judge is a little later on, and it isn't each other or anybody else. It's Christ and the Father themselves. 
So he says that according as it is written, He that glories, let him glory and the eternal. Not among themselves as to who was the better Christian, who had the highest calling, whose favorite preacher was the best, and so on. All our glorying ought to be in Christ Emmanuel, who has called us. So that's bottom line to chapter 1. Now let's go on to chapter 2. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. So he didn't come with the philosophies of the world, the uh, current wisdom or theory or whatever it might be that mankind might have, philosophy of the Greeks or the Romans or anybody else. He didn't come as a mighty one. He had been very high in the Jewish organization, but God had knocked him down and knocked the Judaism out of him and the pride of being a Jew. Uh, and he said he counted that all as dung in another place. Just manure. Something you get on your feet and try to get wiped off is what he said Jewry was. So he said he didn't bring that. He didn't bring uh, all of his credentials as a teacher among the Jews or a rabbi or any of that. He says, that's all dung to me. All I'm bringing you is the things of God. So he just told them that's where they should glory. And now he turns around and says, I didn't come to you with all this great speaking and all these great credentials. I only came to declare the testimony of God, the words of God, the things of God. That's the purpose. Only reason for coming. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Emmanuel the Christ and him crucified. That's all that really matters. That's the bottom line. You can have your theories, your ideas, your philosophies, your IQ that you think is so great, our vanities, our egos. We have to put all that aside and look to Christ who was crucified for us and whereby we can have salvation through his blood and through his resurrection. Nothing else means a thing. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now there's another place where he talks about how he had an affliction so he had to use very large letters and he apparently had something wrong with his eyes and whatever the debility was, it appears from the way that's written that it might have been something that wasn't very pretty to look at. Uh, that was uh, made him ugly, if you will. And we always thought that that was to humble Paul. But I think when we get there and go through that, we'll find that it says it was there to humble the people, not Paul. Christ had already humbled Paul in his own time and way. But what was done to Paul and what Christ did not heal and told him, all right, you've asked three times, forget it. I'm leaving it on you to humble the people. Now tie that together, and we'll see that and go through it. I won't now. I came in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. So he didn't come uh, with a great deal of cockiness and ego and to promote himself as the greatest of the ministers, above Peter or above Apollos or whoever. He came in weakness. And 
that affliction he had may have been part of the weakness, he realized his own weaknesses. He realized his own incompetence. He realized he was not God and he could not save himself, that he needed Christ above all. So he said, I didn't come to you uh, gloating and promoting myself. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. You know, that got perverted in Worldwide Church of God there for a while when we started putting out that, uh, oh, what was the name of that magazine? That highbrow thing that they put out that had a limited circulation. The Stan Raider was behind. Anybody remember what we called that? Quest magazine, yeah. Uh, it was full of the words of man's wisdom, if you remember it. It had very little to do with the gospel of Christ. It had very little to do with the Bible. But quite a little money was spent on producing that magazine to promote, really, essentially, Stan Rader and the Ambassador Foundation and the the uh, temple of God, which had been turned into an orchestra pit for the world, and some of those things that went on there. Um, and Paul's saying that's not the way it's to be. Not with man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power to show our humility, our meekness before God, and His power. So it's His Spirit that we're looking to, and His power, not anything of man or of ourselves. I think we all recognize that we are not any great shakes, and that we need to go to God every day and pray for strength and power and His Spirit to help us fight our lacks, our faults, our weaknesses, and so on. Without His power and His Spirit, we are nothing and can do nothing. So he's saying, I couldn't either. Uh, it all had to come from God. So he's pointing them here to God from the very beginning of this book till now. And humility before him. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What gives you the power to overcome? The Spirit of God. Do universities and PhDs and all those things give you the power to overcome and grow and be like God? Not a chance. But the Spirit of God and us being humble before His Word gives us the power to be what we need to be. And we need to tap into that on a daily basis to be sure that we grow and overcome. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect or mature, Yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world, that come to nothing. Where are all the universities going to be here in another year, two or three or four? There won't be one left. They'll all be gone. And all of their uh, degrees and all of that will be gone. It's interesting, I ran across my Ambassador College class ring the other day. Uh, solid gold has the lion and the lamb emblem on it and the date of my graduation and all of that. And I looked at it and I said, well, that's all gone. College is gone, defunct. 
I wear that. Nobody will know what it is or what it means. It's, it's a thing of the past. I was talking to someone in St. George just two days ago. And they wanted to know what my religion was. Well, I says, do you remember Herbert Armstrong or Garner Ted Armstrong? This was a person probably 50-ish, 45, 50. Now, I never heard of them. Well, where do I start to explain? I kind of dropped it. You know? I says, well, we had some philosophies about family and this and that. They were kind of like the Mormons. Not Mormons, but, you know, we, we believed in strong family and all that. I was trying to kind of be friendly with him. But uh, I didn't go into anything doctrinal or pagan or anything of the nature. But, you know, that's just all gone, Ambassador College. What do we take from it? Well, there I learned, before there and there, that this word is inviolate. I learned that the Spirit of God comes and works with those who will pay attention to this word. So there's something that remains of Ambassador College in your heart and mind in a worldwide church of God. Some who have been faithful and will be to the end who have not bowed their knee to Baal. But Princeton and Harvard and Yale and your favorite University of Ohio or whatever one you like is going to be gone and everything it taught, and every degree it ever gave, will be worthless. Because this world, and this wisdom, and Satan's way is going away. So, what good does it tell, to do to tell people that you're Princeton, or Wales, or you know Yale, or one of those fancy ones? I'm a Harvard man myself. I spent four years at Harvard. Did you know that? Lived right up on Mount Harvard in Colorado for four years. But I didn't learn, I didn't get a degree from it. Didn't learn any philosophies from it. I looked across that valley and praised God for His creation. Because that's what counts as God. So the wisdom in the worldly way will mean nothing. They'll all be gone. But that which you have learned will remain forever and forever and ever. Glory to God. Verse 7, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world into our glory. Now we know that Christ was appointed to come and die before the foundations of the world were laid from another scripture. And here Paul says, that this whole thing is a mystery that the world doesn't understand, but it was set in place before the present creation. It's been there all along. Herbert Armstrong did not even really understand the mystery of God until shortly before he wrote uh, about the mystery of God. He didn't comprehend fully that we are to become God, which is blasphemy to nearly every religion on earth, including every Christian religion except this one. Nobody understands the mystery of God. It came through one whom God trained, did not even reveal that to for some decades, and then did, so that we might understand. 
wisdom of the mystery of God that's been there all along, but he has revealed only to very small groups of people at very small times. And not even to Herbert Armstrong, and none of us got it either until he showed it to us, did he? Mystery of the ages, that we're to become God. Now, we kind of understood in the little booklet, Why Were You Born?, that came out in the early 50s. Uh, but the full grasp and understanding of what that meant didn't come till decades later, or at least a decade. I guess he wrote that sometime in the 60s, as I recall. So, this comes only to those whom God calls, which none of the princes of this world knew. I just made a statement that none of the churches, none of the people knew. Well, that's what he says here. None of the leaders of this world had any clue of. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Had they really grasped who he was and what he was and what the plan for mankind is, they wouldn't have crucified him. But they didn't get it at all. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. So he says, nobody got it. It's beyond comprehension. What do the so-called Christian churches of this world teach you? That you're going to go to heaven and be with Christ and sit on a cloud and play a harp or whatever their particular philosophy. But none of them believe that you're going to become God. They don't grasp that. And that in every sense we will be like Him. It's not entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for them that love Him. Now, do we understand everything that he's going to do for us? Some of them understand that there'll be no more tears or pain or suffering or death from Revelation 21. But they don't get the significance of what that means. But it's not completely unknown. Read verse 10. But God has revealed them to us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. So God has given to a small group of people an understanding of why we're here, what our purpose is, where we're going to wind up, ruling with Christ on the earth a thousand years. How many religions understand even that? Revelation 5.10 says it so plainly. We'll reign a thousand years with Him here on this earth. They don't believe it. They think they go to heaven when they die and they'll always be there. No, they don't. Catholics don't either. think they got a beatific vision. And the more your, your parents and your relatives pay down here for your penance or absolution or whatever the word is, the clearer the vision of God you get. Now, that's a way to spend eternity. Have you ever driven in fog? And you don't see hardly anything, and you strain, and you strain, and you strain to see what's beyond the fog so you don't run over anything. And then as the fog clears a little, you can see a little bit better, but you're still sitting there straining to be sure what's ahead of you. That is Catholic philosophy and teaching. A beatific vision, not a very clear view of God, 
But it gets better if you send enough money in uh, from down here. You get to see him a little better. I'd love to just spend my life looking through the fog. Uh, that's, that's wonderful. No, to us, he's revealed these things. For what man knows the things of a man save the spirit of man which is in him? Now, this ties in with Ecclesiastes, where Herbert Armstrong first recognized that we have a spirit in man that is different than that of the animals. We have something that was developed by God specifically for us. Now, he does say there in Ecclesiastes that the animals have a spirit as well, uh, the spirit of life. But their mind is far more limited than yours and mine. They go by instincts and a little bit by experience, but they primarily have a very limited capacity to think, to reason, and so on. And we have a very dynamic one that God gave us that is above that of the animals. Bunny huggers, beware. But you can't understand the things of God without the Spirit of God combined with the Spirit or the intelligence, the reasoning and logic, logical ability that mankind has. For what man knows the things of a man, save the Spirit of man which is in him, even so the things of God knows no man but the Spirit of God. Man is limited to the capacities that the Spirit in man gives him. He cannot go beyond that. Now, he's trying. He's trying to understand eternity. He's trying to understand eternal life through science. And he can't get it. And he's coming up with all these things that they're trying to combine with man to make him immortal and to make him so intelligent by messing with the things that God has put here. Now, we understand that God is going to give us eternal life and immortality and unlimited capacity mentally via a resurrection and a glorification. And it'll be a whole lot simpler and a whole lot better than anything that man is trying to devise down here. Uh, one of their biggest goals is to make Mars habitable so that what we've destroyed down here we can continue on Mars. Anybody for first ship to Mars to start a new civilization? This was a pretty good one here till we messed it all up. But you can't know this without the Spirit of God combined with the intelligence level that He gave man. Animals can't get it at all. And the human beings, 99.9999% of them, cannot get it either. You are such a blessed person to be sitting here, understanding the plan and purpose of God for you and me. Do we even begin to grasp the depth of glory and honor and thanks that we need to give to Him for what we do know? And here we sit around and gripe about each other and uh, about conditions and about this or that or the weather or why hasn't Christ come back yet. And we have our little things that we like to worry and be concerned about. And then we get out of the thankfulness 
that we ought to have toward the great Creator who gave us the most precious thing ever given to mankind, and that's knowledge and opportunity to live forevermore in the kingdom of God with no sorrow, no pain, no fear, no death, and to live and reign with the two creators of the whole universe who made this earth that we live in that is so beautiful, even yet, apart from man's pollution, it's still beautiful. I want to live forever with somebody who could make this, not as somebody who can send me to Mars on a rocket and let me figure out how to breathe. It's just, you know, there's no comparison. The Spirit of God has been freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. We even had somebody who was an elder who came here, and I accepted that eldership for some years because he had been ordained. But most of the time he spoke out of worldly books instead of the Bible. He'd sometimes carry four, five, six books up there and magazines of men and use them as the basis of the sermon or some military experience of some kind instead of the Word of God. It bothered me off and on and time to time, and now he's gone and he's an enemy of us. Why? Didn't believe and stick to the Word of God. Preach the philosophies of men more than the Word of God. Paul's warning about that here. We don't teach man's wisdom, but that which the Holy Spirit teaches comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. Normal, everybody, every day, Human beings do not understand the Spirit of God. There are religions here in our country where people talk about how they're in the Spirit and how the Spirit of God laid this on them and the Spirit of God gave them a dream. But he didn't. He says, I give my Spirit to them that obey. And they don't obey. They say the law is done away. So, yes, they're speaking in a Spirit, but it's not the Spirit of God. You are among a very, very few who have that. And all of those who think they have the Spirit of God, who learn what you believe, think you don't have it. So here we are. That natural, normal man does not understand the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to them. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Without that germination, that Spirit of God begotten in your mind, you cannot understand. But he that is spiritual analyzes or judges all things, uh, yet he himself is judged of no man. So we, having the Spirit of God, can look and make judgments. We look out at the world, and we see this philosophy, and that theory, and this procedure, and we can analyze it in the light of the Word of God, and what His Spirit has taught us, and we can judge that that's not the way to go. Right? Or Kim trails in the air the way to go? 
No. Is polluting our water supply with chemicals the way to go? No. Is shooting monkey pus in our blood veins to prevent flu the way to go? No. Is spreading aborted babies on our skin to make it softer the way to go? I don't think so. See, the Spirit of God teaches us things, and we can make judgments about what's happening around us that people in the world simply cannot make. So this is not talking of condemning or judging one another. This is making judgments about the things that are spiritual as opposed to those which are not. We have that discernment, that capacity. And we are not judged of any man. He says, you, don't, you aren't my judge a little later on here. I don't know whether I'll get there today or not. Probably will, might. He says, you're not my judge. I'm not your judge. God is the judge of us all. We simply cannot judge one another. We say, well, I, that's just my opinion. I'm not a judging. I'm not judging. Well, your judgment is so-and-so's a dink. That is a judgment. That is a condemnation. Okay? God makes those judgments. And Paul said, I'm thankful he is the one that does. David said that, didn't he? He's, God gave him choices. He says, well, I'll let man punish you. I'll let... How did, I think there were three choices he was given, wasn't he? Turn him over to man or, or whatever the other one was. He says, or you're at my mercy. David considered that for a very short while. says, I think I'll go with God. He lost a son. But it would have been a whole lot worse if he'd have been left in the condemnation of man. Always best to leave ourselves in the hands of God, who has endless mercy. His mercy never fails. You and I can be thankful for that, that he gives us a new start every day. Our sins are forgiven through the perpetual and ongoing sacrifice of Christ. If we did not have that, we'd all be dead men indeed. Because every one of us sins every day. In one form or fashion, we come short of the standards of God and His Word, don't we? I do, you do. Thankfully, He's our judge, not each other. For who has known the mind of the Eternal, that He may instruct him... But we have the mind of Christ. He said, let this mind be in you, which is in Christ. And through the Spirit of God, we have a down payment on the mind of Christ. And we have all these words that came from Christ to educate ourselves in what his mind does, what his mind thinks, how he thinks. And we are to come to think just like he thinks. Now, his plan of salvation, based on Romans 11, which we went through recently, is such that all Israel will be saved. Not every individual, but the vast, vast, vast majority. Because God is a success, not a failure. There have been some mighty bad Israelites. You know that? Over the last 5,000 years? been some mighty bad Israelites. Lots and lots of them. You look at this country today, from coast to coast, and you add up 
all the good people and you add up all the bad people and all those that are pretty well mixed with bad, would this make a good world to live in from now on? Just what the United States is today? Man, I wouldn't want to live this way forever. There's a lot of bad Israelites out there. A lot of them. I just read an article this morning about Wells Fargo Bank and how it's cheating millions and millions of people, taking their homes away from them, illegally destroying their lives for profit. There's an institution that ought to be around forevermore, don't you think? No. We need to come to have the mind of Christ. And if He is willing through His sacrifice, to be sent to the earth for the salvation of all men. Isn't that what it says? God so loved the whole world that He sent His only begotten Son. So He loves all those real bad Israelites out there and all those really bad Gentiles out there and us too, whom He's called, who were at one time out there among those. How much more should we forgive each other? We have the mind of Christ. Let's get into chapter 3. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. Now, he's saying here, you've been fighting among yourselves, trying to pick out who you think is the best leader, and you've gotten yourselves all puffed up about how important and how knowledgeable you are, and you're forgetting that God is more knowledgeable by far than any of you, and then anything that you get that is eternal and long-lasting and is part of the mystery of God is something that didn't come from you. So be thankful for what you've been given. Instead of creating confusion and frustration by reacting as carnal human beings. So he's getting down to it here a little bit now. He's, he's been pawing through this. Now he's kind of getting down to where he's headed a little bit. It'll get more. I couldn't speak to you as the spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as to babes in Christ. Because they were judging their ministers. They were judging each other. They were condemning one another. They couldn't get along. Didn't he say back there in chapter 1, I hear that there are divisions and schisms among you that you're not unified, that you have grudges and attitudes about each other. So he said, you should be thinking spiritually in chapter 2. In chapter 3 he says, but you're not. So I have to come to you as if you're just carnal, everyday human beings who are living in and thinking carnally and selfishly about yourselves and each other. You're not thinking spiritually. You're going by your human reactions. I can't speak to you as spiritual because you're not thinking on a spiritual level. The fruits of the Spirit of God. Love, joy, peace, forgiveness, long-suffering, patience. Those are the things of Christ that we're to be living by. But they were doing it by their feelings, their emotions, their attitudes toward each other. So he says, i got to come to speak to you as if you're just plain old everyday carnal people because that's the way you're thinking. 
Okay? I fed you with milk and not with meat. I, I, I have to tell you here, you're not thinking spiritually. So he's been going over that from the beginning. Why are you fighting among yourselves? Why have you got attitudes about each other? What's wrong here? Why aren't you sitting here being so thankful to what God has given you that there's no room in your mind for all of this pick, pick, backbite, uh, gossip, trash about each other that's going on? Haven't we seen it on this property? Oh, my. And then we complain about it among them and then do it ourselves with each other. Sad. I've, not, I've had to feed you with milk. I'm trying to get you to understand the lowest spiritual things so that you might progress beyond your carnality. For hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are you able. So he says, I've, I've had to try to get the very basics of Christianity across to you. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those, you know, that follow those attitudes. And it's so easy for us to get away from Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I believe it. You believe it. But how is it, easy is it for us to depart from it and think carnally and naturally by our own emotions? There's where they were. It says, you couldn't really get it spiritually before, and you still can't. So he says, I'm going to keep writing. For you are yet carnal, still thinking in fleshly ways, human, natural ways. Vanity, jealousy, greed, envy, you know, those things that are normal to mankind. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? If there are envies, strife between you, you're divided in mind and attitude, he says that's the fruits of the, that's the works of the flesh. That's human, natural, carnal stuff. It's not spiritual. And we can't judge ourselves among ourselves, for that is not wise. This is just Paul was appointed to tell them, you know, there's a problem here. We need to get over it. For while one says, I am of Paul, another, I am of Apollo, are you not carnal, picking and choosing who you think is the best teacher for you to follow? Well, we're kind of that way right now in the whole church because there's like 400 different groups or more, and you have to kind of listen and try to see where's the Word of God coming from as opposed to the ideas and thoughts of men. And is it really the Word of God or just a spouting of the Scriptures that doesn't tie in with where we are today and what's happening to the church? So he says everybody has their place. Who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? Paul was the apostle, and Apollos was the local pastor. But ministers by whom you believed, even as the Eternal gave to every man, I have planted, he was the one that they first heard the word from, and Apollos watered. Apollos was there as the local pastor to, uh, to water, to dig and dung, and take care of what Paul had planted by 
planting the seed of knowledge of Christ among them. But God gave the increase. No, no man can come by Paul. No man can come by Apollos. Only by the Father and the Spirit of the Father which draws them. So he says, let's get our perspective right here. Everybody has their place. And God has placed them where He wanted. Did you notice there where He says He's given some apostles and some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and so on? He says, God has placed them where He wanted them. Now, here, these people were trying to place them where they wanted them. Some didn't want Apollos to be their local pastor. They looked to Paul. Some didn't want Apollos. They wanted Peter. Well, no, Peter couldn't come and be the pastor of the Corinthian church because he had been appointed to be at Jerusalem as the leader of the whole church under Christ. Paul had been appointed primarily to go to the Gentiles. So he couldn't sit there and be the pastor for the Corinthian church, which some of them wanted. He says, God appointed Apollos. So you need to understand, Apollos has his job. Listen to him. Do what he says. He appointed me a different job. And now, as a, an administrator over all these churches, <coughs> I'm coming to you because of your problem, because I'm not only over you, I'm over Apollos and all the other churches that he was going to. So he's explaining, you need to accept the way things God, the, accept things the way God established them, where he placed them. You know, Herbert Armstrong, I have no doubt, was placed where he was by God. I have no doubt in my mind whatsoever of that. After all these years of experience, decades and decades of it. By him came the knowledge that we understand of how the Sabbath, the holy days are to be, government in the church, when he finally understood it after some time, and the mystery of the ages, why we're here. Those things we all learn from him. You know what? The man was flawed. He had a lot of ego. He had a lot of self. He got off the track a lot with Stan Rader and Quest Magazine and, and going and showing all the Gentile governments everything we have like Hezekiah did. Uh, he, he had a lot of problems. You know what? So did Paul. So did Apollos. So did every one of these guys here who are thinking carnally. We all have problems. We all are short of the glory of God. So he's saying, come on, let's get past our carnality and let's put ourselves in the hands of God and let's be thankful for what we have instead of unthankful for the ministers he sends and for each other whom he sent. He says, none of them came except through God. So what's he telling them? God appointed Peter, and God appointed me, and then God appointed Apollos, and then God called you through them. Be thankful for what you got. Because God put it there. Now, what happened with poor Herbert Armstrong? People heard that he had 
molested his daughters. Did he? I don't know. I wasn't there. But there was a whole book, actually quite a few books, written about him molesting his daughters, about all kinds of things. I mean, that's just the worst that comes to mind immediately. About Herbert Armstrong. Did he? I could care less. You know that? Not my problem. Whatever he did, God used him in spite of it. That's just the way it is. He gave him knowledge. If he molested his daughters back when they were kids, when? In the 30s, 40s? God continued to give him incredible knowledge through the 50s and 60s and 70s. Whatever it was that Herbert Armstrong did, God forgave. Now, his oldest son, Dick, was killed in a car accident or died shortly thereafter. Did Herbert Armstrong do some of those things? Maybe he did. Is it my judgment of what should have been done with him and write a book later on about all his sins and how he couldn't be a man of God? No, not my job. God appointed him. God called him, just like he did Paul and Apollos and Peter. And it's God's job to take care of them. I had never thought about it, but maybe God required Dick of Herbert Armstrong for some of the things that he did. I don't know. He required a son from David for what for killing Uriah and taking his wife, didn't he? That's very clear on that one. So we have Bible precedents that God took care of David, and God gave David the option. You want me to turn you over to Israel, or you want me to take care of it? We will stick with you. <laughs> Think I will. So the penalty was the son. But you know what? God accepted his marriage to Bathsheba. Didn't he? Fully. Solomon was born. Now, David had sons by other wives that he had taken legally. Now, why didn't God go through one of those legal wives to get an heir to the throne. He chose to go through Bathsheba, who sinned with David, to choose the next king of Israel, who would be the wisest man that ever walked the face of the earth. Strange, isn't it? You know, there's somebody right here on this property that says, I'm still married to my first wife, even though Herbert Armstrong annulled that marriage and told us both to go find somebody to marry. You know, you're living in sin because you're still married to her, not understanding 1 Corinthians 7 or accepting it. You know what? I had been married to Marley for a lot of years before God began giving me the understanding that you and I have today. And if he had not accepted that, do you think he would have done that? and given me the calling that I have today? I don't think so. You know what? We have a merciful God. And whatever sins I've committed, and whatever sins you've committed, are under the blood of Christ. And He is the one I want to judge me. And He is the one you want to judge you. He's the one I want to have judged David. And did what he did with David. 
And he's the one I want to judge Herbert Armstrong, not the guys that wrote all those books about what his sins might have been. And that's just the beginning. I, I just picked one. There's lots and lots more they wrote about. Is he a false prophet because he couldn't figure out exactly when Christ was going to return? No. He understood the flow of prophecy to a great extent. And what happens if you sin? And what happens if you repent? That's the message of prophecy. He didn't get the timing. You know what? Neither did Peter, neither did Paul or Apollos, or any of them. They thought it was coming in their lifetime. Didn't happen. So they're false prophets. If you judge Herbert Armstrong a false prophet, you've got to judge them false prophets, right? Same deal. Well, they were still thinking carnally. Let's go on down here. I'll, I'll go a little further. Who then is Paul and who is Apollos? But ministers by whom you believed, even as eternal, gave to every man, some watered, some planted, but only God could give the increase. You have an in, There's an increase here. Where did it come from? From God. He gave you the knowledge. He gave you the motivation. And here you are. And he's going to give a whole lot more people knowledge and motivation pretty soon, and they'll be here too. Are we going to still be here? Some came. I don't know how much they believed, and some left. I hope we don't have any more of that. I hope we all stick it out and do what we need to do until Christ starts fulfilling those things He said He's going to do that I firmly believe He is going to do. Okay, God gives the increase. Now, He that plants and He that waters are one, equal or together, doing their job, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. From whom? From God. Not from each other. So why do we get on each other? Why don't we help and iron sharpen iron and strengthen one another instead of pulling each other down, as these people were doing? For we are laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry. You are God's building. Each one of you here, God planted in some form or fashion through the ministry, Herbert Armstrong, in that work, me and this one, like it or not. Because nobody else has this knowledge that you have except right here. It's the only place on earth that anybody understands what's going on out here in Utah and Arizona. It's the only place. God only gave it to one person. Just as He only gave what He gave to Herbert Armstrong to one person in this end time. Now, I'm not bragging. That's just the way it is. Didn't, didn't Paul say that? God gave me a job to do. He gave Paulus a job to do. Herbert Armstrong always said he was the only one in 1900 years that preached that. Was that vanity and ego? Maybe a little, but not necessarily. It was the truth. It was simply the truth. So God's the one that does it. We can't choose that, nor can we make our own judgments. We let God play it out and let God handle it. 
According to the grace of God which is given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds thereon. He says, I'm the one that laid the foundation here in Corinth, and now I've got Apollos here as the local pastor uh, carrying it on. Now, did Paul say there, God forbid, that he's the one that founded the church of God? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm the one that raised up the Corinthian church, and now I've sent Apollos there to be your pastor. So are you questioning me? Are you questioning Peter? Why are you fighting among yourselves about who you'd rather have? We're all together. We're unified, he says. Why aren't you unified with us? Let every man take heed how he builds on that foundation that Paul had laid. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ, or Emmanuel. That's the only foundation we can have. And that is what Paul came teaching, was what Christ had established. With the apostles whom he taught three and a half years, and with Paul whom he taught for three and a half years in the desert. He gave him the foundational building blocks. And then it was Paul's job to go out and build these churches and appoint pastors. Just as Herbert Armstrong did. He was the one appointed, and then he built a college to train pastors to keep churches together. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall tell every man's work of what sort it is. God is going to send great heat and great pressure, and indeed He has done so already, has He not? Hasn't there been great heat and pressure on Worldwide Church of God since it died upon every one of us to find out what and where is truth, and what should I be doing? about it, and most have missed the boat and don't have a clue what God has been doing all this time? Now some have built with proper building materials. God did not build the tabernacle in the wilderness on wood, hay, and stubble. There was some wood involved, but it was he used quality materials. Uh, gold and silver and precious stones or gemstones can take a whole lot more heat than wood, hay, and stubble. So we built on the precious, enduring things, or are we easily burned up? Are we easily led astray? It's all going to be obvious someday. I think we're already in that process in the churches of God today. Is who's going to stick and be faithful? Who will bow their knee to Baal? Who will give in to humanness and carnality? And who will continue to act and react as Christ acts and reacts and accept what Christ is doing in the church? It's all going to be made manifest at one time or another. And you know what? We've had a lot of heat so far, and it's going to get worse. There's going to be more heat applied than we've ever known before as this thing gets closer. So if you think it's too hot in the kitchen now. It's not time to get out. It's time to start finding some gold and silver and gems instead of wood, hay, and stubble. Because that won't last. 
And we're all here to be part of the kingdom of God, right? That's what we're here for. We're not here for any other reason. Now, let's not let Satan or our human nature get in our way so that we don't fulfill the purpose for which God brought us here. That's what he's telling them. If any man's work abide which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet as by fire. So if we build and have a treasure in heaven with the right kind of attitudes and character that we have built, and that's what treasure in heaven is, it's not dollars or gold coins, it's sterling character, if you will, solid gold character. That's what is abiding. But he says you could even suffer loss of those things on a spiritual level that you've learned and tried to do, and you might yet be saved out of it, but your reward will be not as great. So we're here to receive a higher reward, not just barely be saved by the skin of our teeth. You know, there could be an awful lot of people circling around the 144,000th chair, <laughs> and we might all be among them. And he even says, doesn't he, at the wedding supper, will some come properly clothed? They will have spiritual attitudes, spiritual character, been cleansed by the washing of the water by the Word, and they're accepted. And then he says, some of you aren't going to show up with the right clothes on. You'll be cast out. We'll go out at the eleventh hour and call some more in that might be willing to listen. That's a scary parable there. I don't know if you even call it a parable. <laughs> it's a truth of what's coming. Know ye not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Let's not be acting carnally. Let's not be back there with the milk. Let's understand the fruit of the Spirit and go there. And build on that. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Every one of us is a part or a building block in the temple of God. And we all have to have the cracks and the blemishes and everything sanded away and repaired by Christ. None of us were perfect building blocks by any means. He was the only one. And he was the chief cornerstone. So beyond that, we're all, we all have flaws and cracks and blemishes and uh, all of that kind of thing. But we can't defile the temple. It's holy. So we have to become holy as he is holy. And you know, you have to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You can't work out your own. I know somebody who was here who said it was his job to work out my salvation. He had to perfect me, because he thought I was the Joshua of, of uh, Zechariah 3, and that it was his job to clean me up, his job to fix me. He's dead now, and I'm still not completely clean, you know? Still got work to do. You think it's your job? No, I think it's God's job. I'm in his hands, thank you, and he's my judge.
And he's your judge. And your life is not in my hands. I may be the minister here, may have been appointed by God to be, but your salvation is not in my hands. All I can do is point you toward God and the attitudes of God and the things that you ought to be building, and then in your reward is according to your own works. Didn't we just read that? Not mine. You and God, one-on-one, is where your salvation is being worked out. We don't work out each other's salvation. It's not our job. Every man's work shall be made manifest, verse 13, of what it is. So, uh, at the end of this sermon now, I think I'm going to tell you all of George's faults so that you can pray for him that he overcome and grow and be perfect. <laughs> I can't think of any at the moment, but uh, I'm sure there are some, George. No, we're all in God's hands, aren't we? Aren't we here trying to do what we need to do to become like Christ and to think like Christ and to love each other as best we possibly can because that's one of the greatest attributes of the mind of Christ is love and forgiveness. He so loved the world that he sent his son that it might be forgiven. That was the purpose. To present himself to be forgiven that we might be forgiven. He was forgiven of our sins. And He forgives our sins today. Well, we've gone far enough here. I think I'm going to mark that and pick it up uh, in verse 18 next week, if God willing. <laughs>